Luke 14, 1 through 11. One time when Jesus went for a Sabbath meal with one of the top leaders of the Pharisees, all the guests had their eyes on him, watching his every move. Right before Jesus, there was a man hugely swollen in his joints. So Jesus asked the religion scholars and Pharisees present, is he permitted to heal on the Sabbath? Yes or no? They were silent. So Jesus took the man, healed him, and sent him on his way. Then Jesus said, is there anyone here who, if a child or animal fell, fell down a well, wouldn't rush to pull him out immediately, not asking whether or not it was the Sabbath? They were stumped. There was nothing they could say to that. Later at the meal, Jesus went on to tell a story to the guests around the table, watching their moves. How each had tried to elbow into the place of honor, Jesus said. When someone invites you to dinner, don't take the place of honor. Somebody more important than you might have been invited to, by the host. Then he'll come and call out in front of everybody, you're in the wrong place. The place of honor belongs to this man. Red-faced, you'll have to make your way to the very last table, the only place left. When you're invited to dinner, go and sit at the last place. Then when the host comes, he may very well say, friend, come up to the front. That will give you, the dinner guests, something to talk about. What I'm saying is, if you walk around with your nose in the air, you're going to end up flat on your face. But if you're content to be simply yourself, you will become more than yourself. Thanks, Laura. Yeah, if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Luke chapter 14. That's where we're going to spend a little bit of time this morning. Um, you know, it's, it's been a couple of months since we started this journey with Jesus through Samaria, through kind of the land, moving from a place of Galilee where um, there was a familiarity with um, the, the Torah, with the history of faith, um, uh, uh, living amongst the people where all of Jesus' disciples had kind of come from, who were looking for God to do something, who were ready for a Messiah to some degree or another, um, and where Jesus spent the majority of his life in ministry, and now he's kind of making his way in Luke's gospel story through Samaria, through a land where everybody that would have avoided because of its um, uh, seeming um, alliance and allegiance to kind of the spirit of the age and its mix and mingling of religion and history, of its uh, lack of... Um, Lack of like ownership of the tradition of the Jewish faith. Like Samaria has become a place for the Jews. It was a place where they would avoid, right? They'd go all the way around it to get to Jerusalem in the south. Um, and so Jesus takes us on a path through Samaria to Jerusalem, where at the end of Luke's story, in Luke chapter, end of chapter 19, when he gets done with this little travel narrative, uh, Jesus is going to be in Jerusalem for the last time. Um, he's going to be in Jerusalem uh, at the time where he's going to go um, be betrayed, go to the cross, die, die, and then rise again. But rather than like a direct route, like it's like, okay, Jesus doesn't go around Jerusalem, so that's kind of different, or around Samaria, that's kind of different. But not only does he not go around it, he seems to meander through it. <laughs> it's not a direct route through Samaria. He doesn't just try to get in it and get out of it really quickly. In some ways, Luke takes almost two-thirds of his entire gospel story um, to tell us about the life of Jesus and the life of those who follow Jesus in the midst of a place and context that's semi-friendly, semi-unfriendly to the ways of God. That there's parallels and there's contrast that, that, that kind of moves out into what would be kind of normally secular life. And in some ways, like, that's kind of the life that we live, right? 
in a little bit, in a little ways, we're in Galilee right now. Like in this space, in this moment. We walk out the doors, we're in Samaria. We're in a place that's not necessarily always directly opposed. There's times we're directly opposed. The Samaritans didn't like the Jews just as much as the Jews didn't like the Samaritans. So there's times when there's confrontation. But most of the people that Jesus meets, especially those outside of the Jewish tradition in, in Samaria, they still are looking for the same thing. They're still looking for life in its fullness, life in wholeness, life with God, some sort of religion, uh, whether they, though they don't seem to want to worship in the, in the same places in the same way as the Jews. They're after the same thing, just in a different way. It's kind of like us, right? That's where we find ourselves. And so as we go through this, this, these stories, it isn't meant for us just to simply figure out some information about God or, or um, some information about Jesus or to, to, to come into and find the different ideas of Jesus in these texts. Like this story is told to um, disciples of Jesus who want to know how to live like Jesus in the midst of a context like Samaria. The way Jesus talks to the people of Samaria shapes the way that we interact with those that are not in this room right now. The way that Jesus talks to those that are disciples, those who are coming from the religious order, like the Pharisees and the scribes that we'll talk about again today, like is how Jesus talks to us in the midst of Samaria. What Jesus wants us to know about him and about God and about who we are and what we're supposed to be doing in the midst of Samaria. So I know we're a couple months into this journey, but like just as a reminder, like we still got a couple more months to go. <laughs> we still got a few more stories to tell. And so as we're reading these stories, as we're listening to these stories, they're not meant just to be information, not meant to just be something that we take and we're like, oh, that's cool. Like this is how Jesus talked and this is what Jesus did. But Jesus is showing us how to live like him in the context of even today. So even as we get into the story today, even as we get into some fun details, some things that maybe kind of popped out, like, oh, we never thought about that before. We've never seen that before. Like, which happens a lot in the scriptures, which is really cool and amazing. Remember, it's not merely for our kind of excitement and our awe and wow of like, that's incredible. It's meant to, to be something that seeds in our heart, that shapes then how we interact with one another, how we interact with our neighbors, how we interact with our family. So let these stories be the stories that actually give shape to our life and help us be ones who talk to one another with others in the land of Samaria. Make sense? Okay, so as a little bit of a refresher, what did Jesus come to do? What did he do both in Galilee and in Samaria? Do you remember what, we talked about this the very first, the first week. Like the, very, the, way, the way Luke starts off his gospel story is he says Jesus came to set us free to proclaim the good news of freedom, right? Remember in Luke chapter four, Jesus says this, he stands up in the synagogue after he comes out of the wilderness and has been tested and proven of his true identity, who he's filled with, who he belongs to. Like he's, he's proven that he's gonna be a different kind of human as he comes out of, the, out of the, the desert time in which he's tempted. And he stands in the synagogue, he unrolls the scroll and he reads these words. He says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he, God, has anointed me. God has made me his own. He's made me the one to trumpet, to announce, to lead. To do what? To proclaim good news to the poor, to those who are in a place where they're unable to provide for themselves fully. They need something outside of themselves. They don't have either the abilities, the skills, the resources, the opportunity, whatever it might be, to, to survive life on their own. They're in need of others. That's what it means to be poor. To proclaim good news to those who are in need of something outside of themselves. 
He has sent me to proclaim liberty, freedom to the captives, those who are bound by something, who are unable to live fully and truly, wholly and completely because of some system and force, some choice and decision, some lack of clarity. Whatever it is, it'll, it binds them and weighs them down, keeps them from being, having the freedom to make the choices that they should make, to do the things that they want to do or are made to do. He has come to, to speak recovery of sight to the blind, not just, not just give sight to the blind, but recovery of sight to those who at one time could see, but no longer can see, to help them remember at their core who they really are, who God really is, who they are in relationship to others and to God, what God meant for them to be in flourishing and in humanity, recovery of sight to the blind, to those who had now become, because of various things, because of struggles in life, difficulties in life, their own choices and sins, because of the systems and the culture and the things that they grew up in, whatever those things might have been that keeps them from being able to see who and whose they truly are, who they're created to be, and who their creator really is. He's come to proclaim liberty, to set at liberty, not just proclaim it, but to set at liberty those who are oppressed, those who are not just bound and, and unable to be fully and truly who they've been created to be, spoken to be, made to be, but who are actually oppressed, who are pushed down and made less than what they were meant to be, enslaved to something else. He's come to proclaim that, to speak that, to do that. And then this last word, which sometimes we kind of skip over, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. In Leviticus 25, which I'm sure it's everybody's favorite book, and you, everybody knows Leviticus 25, right? Everybody got that one? Everybody remember that one? It's, it's everybody, it should be your favorite chapter because it's actually the chapter in Leviticus where we're going through and, and God is kind of outlining through Moses all the different festivals um, and the holidays and the, and the remembrances for God's people. And in Leviticus 25, this is where we get to um, the year of the Sabbath, a whole year in which the people of God rest and let their land rest and let their resources rest and let their everything rest and just receive from the Lord. And then every 50 years, they have not just a year in which they let everything rest, but a whole season of jubilee in which everything is completely forgiven. So all the debt that has been accrued over the last generation is now removed. All of the mistakes that have been made by people who have had to sell off their land because of all kinds of things, who have put their family in bad situations, all that is removed. Everything gets, everything, so there's a little bit of difference between the year of Sabbath where you don't let, you don't, you don't receive anything from the land. You receive it all from the Lord. That means there's some preparation that has to go in. There's some planning that has to go in, but you let the land and the animals rest in the year of Jubilee. There's a general rest, but you're still able to pick of the fruit of the vine of the things that just are growing. You're not able to cultivate it for, for profit, but you're able to, to, to enjoy it, right? But there's this whole, then like the first Maybe 10 verses is the, um, the Sabbath year, and the rest, like 40 verses, is his year of Jubilee, which became known as the year of the Lord's favor. 
The year in which captives are freed, oppression is removed, where which not only do you get to experience all the freedom that happens in this kind of time, but where over and over again in the chapter, you're told to act that same way towards others, to free them, to treat them well, to not demand, even from those who have been like, who have made mistakes and been, or been demanding, that you're supposed to actually get along, it says over and over again, that you get along with one another. That it's a time of not just reconciliation of, of, of economics and earth, but reconciliation of relationship. That's what the year of the Lord's favor is. That everything in God's order becomes in some ways like it was at the beginning. That you were right with your relationship with God that you communed with him and knew him in a way that allowed you to interact with those around you in relationship to you, that was for their flourishing and for yours, for the flourishing of the land in which you were on, for the flourishing of the community in which you were in. It's this kind of experience, at least the idea of it was the experience of what forever would be like, (laughs) what life was meant to be like and what should forever be like, what true humanity is meant to be. And so Jesus says, I've come to speak that into existence, to demonstrate that through my actions, that it is in existence. And he says just a couple of verses later, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Not someday, not in the future, but today. Today the poor have heard the good news. The captives, the blind, the oppressed have been given sight and set free. Today is the year of the Lord's favor. Now is the time for being truly, fully, newly human again. Through him. That's what, that's what he did. That's what he said. And the cool part of it, as we saw, and as Jesus kept on teaching and talking about, was the only thing that necessitates us entering into this freedom <laughs> is being poor, being ones who need it. What does he say in chapter six? He says, blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are poor who are in need of something outside of yourself to save you, to rescue you, to help you survive life, to free you. All we have to do to enter into the Lord's favor is to recognize that we need it. We need him. That we are captive, oppressed, and blind. That we are poor. That's all. That's all he's asking for us. And it seems like, you know, once we're awakened to that, that we would get to experience and live in the freedom of that and, and bear the fruit of the freedom of that, right? That's the expectation, right? Isn't that the expectation of even us and our faith? That what we want and what we're after is not simply to come into a place and to do certain rituals and things, but to actually be ones who get to experience the fullness of life with God. Not just in getting anything that we want. That's not what we're talking about. It's not a hedonistic, like, like I get everything, but a fullness of life. Life that is not sucking. Life that is not captive. Life that is not oppressive. Life that is not blind and feels like I don't know what I'm doing, but a life that is clear and free, even in the midst of difficulties and ups and downs, right? That's what we're after. I mean, that's why we come in this place. I know most of you, and I know most of you are not after a religious experience, some sort of ritual following of rules. You're after something in life, in life with God. And you want your life to bear the fruit of what that life looks like. You want what Jesus promises. Freedom, sight, good news, the Lord's favor on your life. But as we saw last week with Chaz, um, 
sometimes it feels like, whether it's us or those that we know, um, <laughs> we kind of feel like fruitless figs, right? Like, we, we expect us to bear the fruit of all this. We expect others in our lives who have heard the gospel and the good news too, who have seen the seed planted and come up, to have some sort of experience of this reconciliation, this fullness, this whole way of living. And yet it seems like it doesn't always happen like that. And so we wonder, like, well, so what are they doing wrong? What's off? What's missing? But like we saw last week, how gracious our, our father is, our vine dresser is, who comes in and says, you're right, you should expect that. That's normal. That's what a fig tree does. It should have fruit. But give it a little bit of time. Let me cultivate a little bit longer. Let me do my job as a vine dresser a little longer. And then we'll see what fruit is born. And if it doesn't bear any fruit, then it'll be cut down. But I'm going to be patient, so you be patient a little bit. You know, I think one of the things that kind of keeps us from, from experiencing some of this fruit, right, that we're after, is that part of it is that even though we've heard the freedom, um, even though we've entered into like religious practices for the sake of freedom, um, to, to know God and to live freely in relationship with God and others, um, oftentimes, like we don't recognize the cycle that we're in. What keeps us from coming back into bondage and blindness and captivity and oppression. And so in a lot of graciousness, the story today that um, the the Lord just read for us, is a story in which Jesus is kind of demonstrating to some degree how patient he is with fruitless figs and how willing he is to even call those who would think that, who we would think, especially if it was reading Luke's gospel this far, who we think that he would be utterly against and not for, tries to show them what their actual plight is and gives them an invitation to get out of it. And it's an invitation, and the way, and the way Jesus does this is, is really revelatory, because it, re- it reveals a couple things. Yes, it's going to reveal our own plight. We're not different than the Pharisees and the scribes very often, right? Like, we're oftentimes a lot like them. But, but here's the thing. The way Jesus reveals this cycle to them is, is, is somewhat um, descriptive of, like, what all of our neighbors, friends, and family members are going through, where they're trapped in. It's the same thing that binds and, and binds them. And so the way he, he, Jesus is going to approach the Pharisees and the scribes in this little story really is, is helpful for us, especially thinking about those who aren't in this room, too. Again, just think about them. We're going to have to, get, we're going to, have to let the Scripture hit us, too. But in thinking about, okay, what's going on in their own lives? Why is there no fruit why do, we, why do we expect more from them in life, in their relationship with God, and we see less? And how do we, like Jesus, be patient? And what does that mean to be patient in there? What are we inviting them in patience into? So let's kind of look back at the story and see if I can, we can point some of those things out and learn a little bit from Jesus this morning. So Luke chapter 14, verse 1, on a Sabbath... Jesus went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees. So it's a Sabbath. A Sabbath, again, is a ritual practice. It's a practice in which the people, like especially the Pharisees, would have done for the sake of communing with God and relating to one another, right? So it's meant to be a thing like today, a day in which you rest and receive so that you might be able to live fully off of the reality that God gives you everything. Everything you have is from God, and it's abundant and it's gracious, right? So on that day that's meant for that, a day that was designed for that, 
a day that that's what the whole institution of the Sabbath was for. These, these certain leaders, a ruler specifically, so means a ruler of the Pharisees is not just going to be a person who's astute in the law, but also one who's going to be wealthy. So like there's, it's just the way it works in, in systems. Like he's, he's going to be a person of high rank in some sort of way. So whether he's like overly wealthy or not, we don't know, but he's got enough to be able to invite a whole group of people on a Sabbath day to a meal that's been prepared the day before for them to come and to enjoy it at their leisure. So he's going he's gonna to be a person of means, and he's a ruler of the Pharisees, right? So he invites Jesus into, um, into his, to dine with him. And listen, they're all watching Jesus to see how Jesus will act, right? They're watching Jesus to see how Jesus is going to interact with them. Listen, they're really curious about how Jesus acts on the Sabbath, because already in Luke's gospel, he's acted kind of strangely on the Sabbath. He's done crazy things like heal people on the Sabbath, free them from demons on the Sabbath. Like he's actually done the very things that, again, we just read that he would do, but in a day where we're supposed to rest. They're like, being in the rest of the Lord is actually when those things happen. But listen, this is a whole new way of thinking for them, right? This isn't the space in which you do those kind of things. This is the space where you, you, you follow the rules so that you're able to keep people at a distance. You're able to know you're right with God so that therefore you can go about and live rightly outside of this place. It's not meant to be a space where you're supposed to be healed, where God's supposed to act on your behalf, which is ironic because that's exactly what the Sabbath was always meant to be, right? Where we do nothing, but we receive everything. But they're already kind of like worried about Jesus because he's done this with a lot of outsiders, a lot of strange people, like beggars on the streets, a woman who's oppressed in just chapter just before this, a woman who's oppressed by demons for 18 years and bent over, all those kind of things. And so now they're watching really Jesus. How's he really going to act? Because his idea of the Sabbath, of what God's doing on, in, our, in the midst of our rest, what God is actively doing in the midst of our rest is different than what they think God is actively doing or supposed to be doing. And so they're keeping an eye on him. They're watching him really closely. And behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy. Now, we just read over that, and it's like, okay, great. It's another person, another beggar, another, another person in need of Jesus. But listen, the way the text actually reads in the original language is it's not someone who's on the street, but someone who's a part of the group. He's a part of the ones who are dining with the Pharisees. He's somehow an insider to the group. Whether he is a Pharisee or he's a wealthy man, he's somebody who's in, and he's in because he has an illness it's considered the illness of the wealthy. Dropsy was, um, um, a, is, is, is basically, yeah, you, you can throw that up there too, that's fine. Um, so dropsy is a disease, which we call it edema today, right? It's the swelling of the joints. Um, and it makes movement in life really painful and awkward. Makes, you, makes it really hard to get through life. But here's the paradox of, of dropsy is a person with dropsy craved more and more of that which they were full of, which was fluid. So it's a gathering of fluid at the joints. But they were always thirsty, always thirsty for more liquids, and usually liquids that weren't the, the best liquids, right? There, there's a paradox to it. It, makes, it gives you this craving. But here's the thing. As soon as you satisfy the craving, your symptoms got much worse, right? And so it's this sick, cyclical system, right? They crave the very thing that harmed them. And the consumption of the thing that harmed them would actually harm them. And they just would go right back into the, the, the cycle over and over again. And in some ways, this man's external plight echoes the plight of all those who are in this little group. Again, 
dropsy was um, was re- required uh, was regarded as a rich man's disease. Again, because it because in the sense of when the cravings happened, like the only people that could satisfy the cravings were those who had the means to satisfy the cravings. And so, if you were poor, you didn't have the means to satisfy the cravings, so you suffered less from the issue, right? That's the whole idea of it being a wealthy man's like problem, kind of like greed back in chapter twelve. You remember? Like the idea of, of um, Jesus saying, um, don't be covetous, be leery of greed. The, per- the people who had to watch out for greed were those who already had. Those who wanted more were those who were already wealthy. And not just materially, right? Like that's what Jesus' point was. Like you're already rich in the kingdom. And so you gotta watch out for wanting more riches than what God's given you, right? But again, this man's not an outsider to the group. But he's probably, if I'm willing to bet, (laughs) not everybody's favorite, right? He's probably the fig tree that they're coming to the master and saying, why isn't this guy producing fruit? I mean, look at him. Obviously, he's suffering and continuing to suffer. So somehow, it must be his own issue, his own fault. But it's Sabbath, so we don't really worry about that. We'll let him kind of be around us on the edge of us, but they've kind of given up on this guy. They're not seeking after his, his, his betterment at all, right? But he's a part of it, and he's suffering through it, and maybe they're not because, well, they kind of recognize that his issue is their issue. Or maybe they just are so concerned with their own stuff that they don't really care. But either way, this is what Jesus says. He says, a man with dropsy came before him, and Jesus asked the lawyers and the Pharisees, saying, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? So this man who's in the group, who's walking with Jesus and the Pharisees to the dinner, Jesus notices him, and right there he asks him, is it lawful to heal? And again, they've, they've played this game with Jesus before, so they just keep silent. And so, being non-responsive, Jesus took the man and he healed him and sent him away. Jesus, he didn't really care what they thought. He wasn't really looking for permission from them. But he was doing what the Father does on the Sabbath. What the Father does through the, the, this ritual practice of being ones who, don't, who, who, um, who do nothing in order to receive everything, he does what Jesus proclaimed he would do. He heals. And he sends him on his way. He gets him out of the group. <laughs> he gets him away from, away from those, the, these people, right? And who knows? Maybe that was for his sake. Maybe that was so that Jesus could keep the conversation going and there would not be a big fight. Whatever reason, Jesus sends the man away from, the, from them. And then Jesus kind of points out their issue. He's like, listen, in verse five, Jesus said to them, which of you having a son or an ox that has fallen into well on a Sabbath day will not immediately pull him out? Which of you won't act with graciousness when you see someone in need? A child, your child, even the thing that you depend on, an ox. If you see it in need, even on a Sabbath, you're gonna go pull it out of the well. Now, there's, there, to be fair, there were a few in um, the, the first century who would not have done so. There was actually, like, in, in the Talmud uh, and things, you can find certain scripts and laws, mainly the Quorum community, which was kind of the extremists and the Essenes that were kind of like outside, outskirts. They would say you could provide food and sustenance to an animal in a well for the day, but you could not get them out of the well until the next day. But there was no law against getting your own child out of the well. So at least the kids could get, could, could, you could get out, right? And so, I mean, this is kind of like the, the crazy, it's crazy to think about, right? But like, this is how intense they were on trying to do things rightly in order to be right with God, right? They were intense. They were passionate. They were convicted. 
But Jesus says, hey, listen, like you're missing the whole heart of everything. If you, who at your, your initial pull of your heart is to go and pull them out of the well, even on the Sabbath, like why would you think the Father's heart is any different when he sees those in need? Maybe your heart isn't after the heart of the Father then. Maybe you're not actually resting. That's what Jesus is kind of pointing out. It's not that you're not keeping the Sabbath, it's that you're missing the whole heart of the Sabbath. To be ones who not only receive from the Lord, but who offer what they receive from the Lord to others. Who, because you're receiving from the Lord, can offer not what is yours, but what is the Lord's to others. Right? So they keep going on, they keep walking down the road, and finally they get to the house, and then the, the, uh, the story kind of turns. They've been watching Jesus, right? That's what it said in, 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 verse, in verse one. They were watching Jesus carefully. In the original language, in verse seven, Jesus flips the script on them. He says, now Jesus told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed, the same word would be watching them carefully, <laughs> when he, who now has been looking at how they interact with one another, when he's looking for how they Sabbath, how they commune with God, and what that life with God actually produces in them. He told this parable when he notices how they choose places of honor, saying to them, when you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you is invited, invited in. And then the one who invited you both will come and say to you, get out of your place. So if you come up and you said, say the place of honor is right, right where Kyler is. We'll just make Kyler the example because we're friends. So you say you come and you, you sit where Kyler is. But I did, you didn't know that I invited Kyler to sit in that spot. Well, well Kyler, who's, who comes in uh, promptly late, um, as the rest of our faith family does, when he comes up to this space, and, and, and I say, hey, you know what? That's actually Kyler's space. I mean, in front of everybody. Like, that's pretty, like, whew, right? You're going to get a little nervous. going to be like, uh, whoops, right? But this is the way it works in the Jewish community. This would not be an abnormal thing. You chose your own seat, which is not the place, not the way you're supposed to do it. And so, but now everybody else is sitting. So where are you going to sit? Like, well, you got to sit at the back or in a really awkward spot. Or you got to, like in our case, you got to walk in front and sit on the front row that's over here way up to the side, right? Where nobody ever touches. Like, right? You get put in the dunce seat, right? And that's pretty embarrassing, right? But, but why are you embarrassed? What got you into that situation in the first place? Because you didn't, again, like it's not just you just came down and weren't thinking about it and you just kind of sat where you wanted to sit. You sat in a place of honor. You put yourself, you went there intentionally to be honored by someone. Because if you sat there, everybody else would, would assume that you're an honorable person. And that the person who invited you honored you. That you went there with a, an idea of knowing, like you knew yourself only through comparison and contrast with other, everybody else there. You knew yourself only in a way in which you were better than those who were under you and that you were honored by the one that was above you. That's how you kind of found your place. And so when your place is taken, well, now you're, you're shamed. And like your whole identity crumbles because now you're not above everybody, you're below everybody. Now you're not in a place of honor, you're dishonored. And listen, you think that's crazy, but here's what Plutarch, the Greek philosopher, said about mills just like this. About the time of Jesus, he wrote this. He said, when you have taken your place, you ought not to try to discover who has been placed above you, but rather how we may be thoroughly agreeable to those placed with us. 
So it's not about trying to get into another place who's, hey, it's not who's ahead of me. It's like, hey, how do I live with those who are with me? Right? Reasonable. Because here's what he says. For in every case, a man that objects to his place at the table is objecting to his neighbor. Because listen, you think you just want to be honored because you're like, hey, I deserve this. I've lived this way. I've been obedient in this way. I've been, I'm a person of rank in this way. But really what you're saying is that I'm better than everybody else. Really what you're looking at when you're wanting a place of honor is you're wanting to be in conflict with your neighbor. You're wanting to compare yourself to your neighbor and figure out how you're better than your neighbor. How you're more righteous than your neighbor. How, you're, how you've got what your neighbor has and maybe some more. And in objecting to your neighbor, you're not objecting to the host directly, maybe. Like, you're not saying the host got it wrong, but here's what happens in your heart. You begin to hate your neighbor, and you get to hate the host, too. You begin to despise the ones who are with you, and eventually become bitter with the one who's determining where everybody sits. Do we wonder why this is, like, such an issue? Like, why they have a hard time helping people on the side of the road. If the way they look at relating to people is through comparison and contrast, well, they don't really have a love for neighbor anymore, right? They're against each other. Like this is what Jesus is observing. And the way they interact with one another, they only know themselves by how they're comparing and contrasting themselves to where they're sitting at the table. But in doing so, all they're showing is that they really don't care about one another at all. And they really don't even like the host. They're actually not for one another and for flourishing. They're not being good to one another like in the year of the Lord's favor. They're actually against one another. Now, like it looks different for our culture today, right? We don't go to parties and there's not placements. I mean, at least most of us, some of us may, but like most of us don't go to parties and there's a placement of where you're supposed to sit at and you're gonna try to figure out where you rank in the social system based on where you sit at the dinner party. That may still happen some, but don't we have enough social rankings in our little worlds, whether it be at work, or on our phones, in our community, in which we're all kind of doing that. We're kind of knowing where we fit and who and how we fit based on how others are responding to us, liking us. We're always comparing and contrasting ourselves to what they're doing and what they have. Like this happens in every social setting, right? And what happens in the social setting when we know ourselves in that way, when the only way we know ourselves is when we play the game of where are we sitting, how are we honored? What are we in comparison to them? When we play the game, we always end up at the bottom. We always find ourselves somehow at the bottom. Now, the bottom may not always be ex as external as Jesus' parable, where you're moved to the back table. But internally, because no one knows you really, like you're oppressed, you're captive, you're blind, your life is lifeless, it doesn't give, right? Like you, the very thing that you're after keeps you in the very cycle of being against others and not with others. It keeps you from, in the way the message that we read, that Laura read, the, the translation read, it keeps you from experiencing a life more than the life that you're experiencing now. But isn't that what Jesus called us to? A life that's more than what we're experiencing now? An exalted life? A life in which if we're comfortable in who and whose we are, and who God says we are, and who God's made us to be, that we're, that we're not known by what our culture says we are, by what our social group says we are. We're not 
We're not of value based on how we fit within whatever system that we find ourselves in at work or at home or in community. If, if we're not found in that system, if we're not caught up in that cycle, well then we have our value and our worth, our identity has to come from somewhere else out of it. And again, like Jesus said already before, who are we outside of the system? Well, we're poor. Well, we're poor who have had good news proclaimed to us. We're captives who have been freed, blind who have sight, oppressed who have been given freedom. We're ones who are experiencing the favor of the Lord. That's who we are. If we live that way, we'll really get to live that way. But if we keep playing the game, if we keep playing the game, we're just going to have bloated joints and living life's going to be really painful and awkward. And so what Jesus does to the man who has dropsy, Jesus proclaims and speaks to the Pharisees. He's like, listen, you guys, you guys have, have, have all the religious stuff figured out, but you're missing everything. <laughs> like, you're missing everything because you're not resting in what God has done for you, who God really is and who you are really in him. And so you're caught in this cycle and every time you get what you want, you get the likes that you want, the influence that you want, the promotion that you want, the favor that you want, the honor that you want. All it does is bloat you up and make life more painful and more awkward. So it's no, it's no wonder that you don't care about the person on the street, that you look over those in need around you. When, you're, when you've got that kind of ailment, how could you not be so self-focused, right? But see, Jesus doesn't just free us from, from comparing and contrasting to one another. Um, he actually frees us from using one another too. In verse 12, Jesus says, also to the man who had invited him, to the host, to the ruler of the Pharisees, the man who would have had it all figured out. He says, hey, listen, like, you, you're supposed to be the guy that's got this all figured out, right? You're supposed to be the guy who, who is leading this group, this group that's caught up in this cycle, this group that's missing the very heart of all the religious practices, which are meant to be practices. Jesus doesn't condemn Sabbath, right? He doesn't condemn the Sabbath. He says, no, you're like, you just don't understand what God does on the Sabbath and what the Sabbath is actually for. For you to receive, do nothing to receive everything so that you might extend what you receive to others. But Jesus says, hey, listen, like, you're supposed to be the one that, that, that shows them how to live. So you're the one that all this group that's here, the reason, a part of the, the reason the cycle still exists is because of the way you arrange the party. Look how he arranges the party. He says, Jesus says in verse 12, when you have a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers and sisters or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. In other words, don't just invite those who reciprocate what it is that you're extending. And this, is, this may seem strange in our day, but it was pretty normal, right? You invited people into your home in order they might invite you back into their home. You honor people that they might honor you, right? This, it was the idea of, of, which is a good general rule, right? Like you wanna honor those who honor you, all that kind of stuff. But remember what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount? Like it's... Like true love is not just honoring those who honor you, right? It's loving your enemies, praying for those who hate you, right? So, but what happens when all we do is we do, we look at other people and see what they can do for us, then we only engage them in a way that keeps them in the same cycle. 
keeps us in the same cycle. A cycle where we're using people. We now see people, not just how I can be better than them and get honor, but how I can use them to get the things that I want. Again, we continue to push people out of what they're meant to be, who they're meant to be, and keep them into the cycle of it. And he, again, Jesus is saying this to the, to the leader of the Pharisees. He's saying, hey, listen, you're creating this atmosphere that keeps the cycle going. So instead, instead, look, all you got to do, all you have to do to break the cycle is this. Verse 13. But when you give a feast, invite the poor. Who? The poor, the needy, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Why? Because they can't repay you. Why? Because they can't give you the thing that you're after. But, listen to what he says, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. You'll be paid at the resurrection of God's people. You'll, who will pay you back? Who will be the one that reciprocates? It'll be God. You'll be one who actually Sabbath, who gives out of what's not his to receive what only God can give, Right? You'll be actually have to be the one who Sabbaths. All you have to do to break the cycle, all you gotta do to break the cycle of comparing and contrasting, of staying in a fruitless life where you get sucked back into the systems and the cycles of, of the culture and the, even the, cult, the religious culture. All you have to do to break the cycle is invite people who need God and who know it. That's it. Invite them in. Share with them what you have. And you will get from God everything. You'll receive from God. He'll be the one that owes you. He'll pay you back, which is pretty crazy, right? That's all you need. And listen, someone in the crowd in verse 15 says, amen, hallelujah. Not exactly, but kind of. Verse 15, when one of those who reclined at the table with him heard these things, he said to Jesus, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. Blessed is everyone who gets to come to a meal like that. How incredible is that? Yes and amen. Listen, all we have to do to break out of the cycle of, of this perpetual, like being against one another, not a life of fruitlessness and lack of flourishing, is <laughs> to be to be ones who give what we have from God to others who are in need of God. That's all we need to do? Well, yes and amen. How awesome is that? Like, hey, maybe the person who's, who's sitting there shouting is probably the one who's kind of at the low end of the table and has had a hard time moving up, who probably doesn't have a lot to reciprocate. It was like, yes and amen, if I don't have to reciprocate that, I'm in, right? And I say that kind of jokingly, but it's, but Jesus kind of points out, he's like, hold on, wait a minute. You're right. Yes and amen. We'd all say yes and amen to that. But remember this. Here's the deal. And again, Jesus in his, in his graciousness is somewhat blunt, but it's a gracious bluntness. He says in verse 16, but Jesus said to him, a man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, come for everything is now ready. So a man's having a great banquet. It's a banquet that everybody knows about. The people that, are, that he's about to, that he sends his servant to go to are not people who have no idea that the banquet's happening, but who are aware that the banquet's happening. Who know that the banquet has been declared, they just don't know when the start time is, right? 
They know that these things have been in the work. It's not like, you know, in today's world where it's like, hey, be there at 7 p.m. You can do a save the date. It's like, hey, they had to wait for the harvest to come in. They had to get all these different things ready that are like contingent upon weather and timing and all the stuff that's out of people's control, right? But they know that this banquet is here and this banquet's coming. They've been invited already. They're in relationship with the one who's inviting them already. Okay, that's important. He's given a banquet. He sends the servant out and says, okay, go get them. It's time. It's ready. The banquet's ready. Verse 18. But they all alike begin to make excuses. The first said to him, I've bought a field and I've got to go out and see it. Please have me excuse. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I have married a wife and therefore I cannot come. I don't really know what to do with that text, to be honest. Um, it's like my wife said, no, I don't know. I don't know what, it, what that means. But no, but seriously, but look, what's happened is again, they've known this thing's been coming, right? They know this life, this banquet, this party has been, has been, has been planned. How blessed it is to eat the, from the table of the, at the kingdom of God. They know this has been there. But when it comes time to it, they're preoccupied with acquisition. There's nothing wrong with having more land, but you're not gonna lose the land if you go to the banquet, right? There's, there's nothing wrong with oxen and having more oxen, but there's nothing gonna happen to the oxen if you go to the banquet. Listen, being married is a good thing. It's a thing that actually would be enhanced by coming to a banquet. <laughs> Like you actually be inviting them into the fullness of, of this. They might not have been invited to before, right? Because maybe you weren't married before. So you're not losing out by inviting your wife to the banquet, right? But you're preoccupied with the new and the more. You're, you're focused so much on the acquisition of things that you think will make life whole and full and good that you miss you miss, not the invitation, you've heard the invitation. You miss the opportunity to respond. You don't miss the invitation. The invitation's been there. You know the invitation. But you miss the opportunity to respond to it. You overlook the opportunity to respond to it. You move on past the opportunity to respond to it. Listen, Jesus is saying this is what's happening to this group in this cycle. It's like, listen, the guy that you walked past that was in your group, that had dropsy, whose an outward illness is the form of your inward illness. Over and over again, you've had opportunities to pull him out of the well. The person you passed all the time on the street who was possessed by demons, who, who was lame, you've had opportunity over and over again to extend and respond to the invitation to rest and to share with what you're resting in. But when it comes down to it, you're preoccupied with something else. You're preoccupied with something else. But here's what happens, and this is what Jesus says in verse 21. So the servant came and reported these things to the master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, go out quickly to the streets and the lanes of the city and bring in who? The poor and the crippled and the lame and the blind the servant said, sir, what you commanded has been done. I've done it. I've gone out and I invited everybody who's in need and open to receive, to not just listen, but respond to who wanted to respond. I brought them all here. And he said, I've done what you commanded. I've done, and still there's more room. And the master said to the servant, go out to the highways then and the hedges. Go out way past 
your city, your relationships, your context. Go and compel them to come to my house, that my house might be filled. And then responding to the one who said, hallelujah, blessed is the, everyone who will eat at the table of the kingdom of God. He says, for I tell you, none of those men who were invited will taste of my banquet. If we wonder why we're, we're fruitless, why we, how, like why we tend to see a lack of it, it's maybe, it's, maybe it's why our friends and neighbors tend to see a lack of it. Again, in a context like Samaria where it's not unfamiliar with the gospel story, not unfamiliar with the good news, not unfamiliar with religion and the things of, of faith. We wonder why. Maybe it's because they're distracted. We're distracted. Again, none of these things are bad. He's not condemning land or oxen or wives. But he is saying, hey, listen, are you in a place where you're willing to receive not just hear, but respond. Because there's a world of difference. All of us in here know, we've heard the story. All of us in here have heard the good news proclaimed to us. All of us to some level have, maybe to various degrees, have experienced it, maybe even shouted hallelujahs. But what we're looking for in our own hearts, what we're looking for in, in those around us is a neediness, that's all. Just to be poor. And a willingness to respond to the invitation to come in. Will we be willing to respond with an invitation to come in? To share what we to receive what we need and to share with it with others? Are we even open to looking at those around us and sharing with them? I know this is not the most uh, <laughs> maybe uplifting of all of our sermons, but I do think, and I want us to, to walk away just with those questions of are we open, needy? Are we willing to do more than listen but to respond? And are we looking for are our eyes open to those around us in the same place? Because again, what is the leader of the Pharisees challenged to do? Not just have people over, but to share with them what he's received and to offer to them what he's received, the rest of God. Are we ones who are open to that, to doing the same? Let's pray. Father, I thank you that I thank you that you don't give up easily, that you, um, that you desire us to get out of the cycles that keep us from bearing the fruit that you've made us to bear in life with you. May we be ones who in some ways, recognize ourselves as somewhere in this story. And maybe we're not all the same. Maybe some of us are the man with dropsy. Life, moving through life seems painful and awkward. We're striving after things, craving things, desiring things. And every time we feel like we get the thing that we want, we feel like we're just as much in pain and moving just as awkwardly, if not more. 
So I pray just that you would heal us. Maybe we're like those who see that in others but don't see it in ourselves and so we enter into our little social networks and and work and home and neighborhood and we just play the game as the game's played. Failing to see. Failing to see, Father, that what we're after You've already richly provided and you want to give us much more. Failing to see that the way we live life actually divides us, makes us against others and ultimately even against you. So forgive us. Maybe we're the one who sees it as for what it is and proclaims yes and amen, but who's distracted, preoccupied with the new, the next, the more willing to listen, but at the same time not as much willing to respond. Father, make us poor. Let us be poor and needy, blind and lame, so that we might also, in our poorness, Father, be free. And by your grace, extend that freedom to others. All this we pray in the name of Jesus, amen. Sweet the 